0: It's amazing how sermons are born. I'm going to pray and then tell you an amazing story. Or maybe I'll leave it for the sermon. Let us bow our heads. Gracious Father and loving Lord, thank you today for the blood of Jesus. Nothing can bring a greater independence From the powers of darkness, from the chains that have bound us, from the sins that have incarcerated us, from the practices that have claimed our joys and our hopes and our dreams. And today, Lord, we pray as we revisit the declaration of our nation's independence that we find on that stage of the declaration of our dependence. And so Lord, take this message now and shape it to the hearts and lives of those that are watching and those that are listening and our congregation here that we might know nothing but the blood of Jesus can make the difference. In your precious name, I pray, amen. We have a new American citizen. Amen. <laughs> I don't often do this at this point, but I want the newest American citizen to stand right now. Can we say amen? (laughs) Come on, wave that that flag. Svieta was declared and swore her her disconnect from Russia and her connect to the United States of America. She will always be by birth and experience and rearing and upbringing a Russian. She'll never relinquish that but she has chosen to become an American. And welcome to this side of the pond. Welcome to this nation where now you have the right, if the police pull you over, say, as an American citizen, I have a right to remain silent. (laughs) So glad to have you. Praise the Lord today. I remember when my wife became an American citizen in 1991. Uh, We didn't know it, but her brother... uh, was working as a secret service for one of our former presidents, and they made the entire family become American citizens. And we wondered why, but it was such a beautiful thing to attend that swearing-in ceremony. And and people that become American citizens, when they swear in, they have to know stuff that some of you don't know. And uh, we had a wonderful celebration there at our church in Antioch, California, we lined all our steers with red, white, and blue banners in our house. And my wife had a red, white, and blue cake, and we said, Welcome to America. And she still has in her file cabinet her official document showing that she's an American citizen, that all the rights and freedoms of this country, from sea to shining sea, are hers. But sometimes we take our freedoms for granted. Today I want to talk about the birth of our country and the rebirth of the Christian. I want to begin with a scripture that I know many of you have read before, but it's a powerful one. It comes from the book of John. John, if you don't know and understand the Bible, I would strongly recommend dive into the book of John. John is that apostle that had such a connection with Jesus that he has left the breadcrumbs of his relationship with Christ to be our encouragement. In the latter part of the sermon, I'm going to bring out seven powerful points from John's experience with Christ that can become our experience in our Declaration of Independence. John eight thirty six. Therefore, if the Son makes you free, say it with me, you shall be free indeed. As we sit here today... On the north, on the south, on the east, on the west. By land, by ocean, by satellite. This nation is being protected by brave men and women who declared even their lives to preserve what many of us sometimes take for granted. America has a strange beginning. When you get a chance to peek at how your nation came to be, it will be a fascinating journey to find out how this fledgling country fit into the plan of God. America is not an arbitrary country. It is a country that God chose, as Revelation made it very clear. And the earth opened the mouth, opened its mouth, and helped the woman. At a time when religion became oppressive... And overbearing in the continent of Europe in various parts of that continent when the church of Rome had tightened its screws on those that they demand allegiance from, God opened the mouth of this country and brought wayfaring strangers at a time when they believed the world was flat. And if you sail for any length of time in any one direction, you were in danger of sailing off the edge of the earth into oblivion. So something had to happen in that country to fuel them with the passionate desire to, to free the tyranny of Europe, to free the tyranny of Rome and the tyranny of the British government to come to America. And we go back and we talk about that journey. The three short, I think the Pinta, the, the, the Maria, and uh, Nina. Nina came to the shores of America and our forefathers meander their way to the point where God gave them a footing and eventually out of that rubble of anxiety and fear, this country was born. Sometimes when my wife and I travel around the world, we see buildings in certain countries that are older than America. We walk the streets of London sometimes, or we go to parts of other parts of the world, and we'll see a church that is older than this country or a house that was built that is much older than this country. America is really an infant nation, an infant nation in many ways, but God has given it center stage in the pivotal movements of last-day events. July 4, 1776 became the most pivotal year in the birth of the United States of America. But when you study history, you find that it was not so much a birth, but it was a deliverance, not just a birth. Men did not decide, well, let's go ahead and sail and find out where else we could establish a new home. They came to America not to start a new birth, but to experience a deliverance. You see, when you study the history of the American colonists, the American colonists protested the taxation imposed on them by Great Britain. The kings and the parliaments of England believe that they had the right to tax the colonies because many of the citizens, if not all of them, were formerly citizens in Great Britain. My wife is a child of Great Britain, born in Derby, England. So she understands that. But the colonists felt that once they... Declared their freedom from the country that taxation shouldn't follow them there. It's amazing today. We went to the country of Dubai and we found out that (laughs) the very thing that the colonists were protesting is the very thing that America is doing today. That no matter where you go in the world, if you hold a job, you can be in Dubai, you can be in the Philippines, you can be in the Caribbean. Once you are an American citizen, no matter where you are in the world, you've got to pay taxes to America. The very thing they protested (laughs) is the very thing we experience today. But our colonists felt that they should not pay taxes because they declared their independence from the colonies of Great Britain. They protested and they felt that to continue to pay taxes was a violation of of their American rights. But as you considered that Britain was not settling for their protest, Britain decided, since they won't succumb to us, we're going to force them into submission. So Britain decided what they called in history a sneak attack. The British army sought to disarm the American colonists by a sneak attack. And they intended to confiscate the military cache of arms and ammunition Rendering the American colonists helpless against the British Army. Put a pin in that. That is why today Americans are determined to preserve their Second Amendment right to own and possess firearms. It comes from that experience. Because if the British were able to disarm the Americans, they were sitting ducks, to the power of a foreign government. When the British Army activated themselves on April 7, 1775, it suggested the possibility of troop movements... When you look at the the history and the story, you begin to see the British didn't say we're coming to get you. The British decided, since there was no sonar, no radar, no satellites, no planes flying through the air, looking at the movements of foreign countries, they decided, they set sail for many weeks to sneak up on the northeastern colonists. And a man by the name of Joseph Warren sent a man to warn the Massachusetts Provincial Congress at that time located in Concord, Massachusetts, that the site of the largest military cache of arms was at risk because the British were coming, the British were coming to confiscate all their weapons. Well, in the days before April 18th, a man by the name of Paul told a man by the name of Robert Newman, the caretaker of the North Church, still today it's in North Boston, He said, what I'd like you to do is send a signal to alert the colonists of the movements of the British Army. The instruction given is is historically known by the phrase, one if by land, two if by sea. The caretaker placed two lanterns, and I want you to hear the story as it develops. You know the beginning of the movie is always where the plot is established. The caretaker placed two lanterns into the steeple of the North Church in Boston to alert the colonists that the British were planning their attack by sea. The warning is historically known as the Midnight Ride of Paul Revere. But somebody else got involved in the mix. On July 2nd, 1776, a man by the name of Richard Lee, he was an American statesman and historically the founder of the province of Virginia, now a state, he proposed what's called the Resolution of Independence from Great Britain. After reading the Resolution of Independence from Great Britain, two days later that resolution was officially declared and signed by 12 representatives of the American colonies later known as the Declaration of Independence. In the preamble of the Declaration of Independence, also the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, we find these words that we sometimes have heard, but let me repeat them for you this morning. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, That they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, meaning you can't take these rights because you didn't give them, God gave them, and you don't have the right to take them. Can you say amen? That among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of what? Happiness. Now, I'm a strange character. I have in my library a small, thin book. has the Declaration of Independence, another one that has the Constitution, another one that has the Bill of Rights, and then another one that has all the things that we should know in the event that we are ever stopped by a law enforcement officer. Because those of you that are ignorant of your rights can become victims because you don't know what your rights are. It doesn't make sense to live in a country and become ignorant of its rights. And so many people have had their rights taken away because they did not understand due process and they did not understand what they were due, what their rights were that could not be confiscated or, as was said, certain unalienable rights. And I would recommend that you become familiar with your rights. Only then can you live and understand that because of these rights, you can declare your freedom as an American citizen. What about July 4th? According to the Smithsonian Magazine, the first 4th of July celebration happened in Philadelphia in 1777. The Americans fired a cannon 13 times in honor of the 13 colonies. That's why almost subliminally behind me you can see 13 stars representing the 13 colonies that existed when America became a nation. In 1778, France became an official ally of the United States through something called the Treaty of Alliance. Let me tell you what that was all about. You see, America was such a small nation, so limp as it were, not a great strength in our sense of military. We didn't have what we have today. We didn't have air power and and ocean power and tank power and submarine power and all the things we have today. And France, beginning to value the things that they saw rising up in America, in 1778, France became our allies And they stood with us and fought against the British because they signed a treaty of alliance. And today, the Statue of Liberty that you see in New York Harbor is the gift from the French commemorating that alliance of France and the United States during the American Revolution against Great Britain. France France fought alongside us. Why did they do that? They valued the democracy that was coming to birth. And they prayed and fought for these following statements. They prayed that democracy would prevail and that freedom and justice for all would be attained. And today I'm glad that I can walk down the streets. If I haven't committed a crime, I've got freedom and justice. What do you say? Every one of us. That's why later on, former President Franklin Delano Roosevelt sharpened our focus on freedom when he said, in the truest sense, this is a powerful statement, in the truest sense, freedom cannot be bestowed. Listen to this. Freedom cannot be bestowed. It must be achieved. What he meant by that is when you are ignorant of your freedoms... You cannot enjoy these freedoms, but when you are informed of your freedoms, you can achieve these freedoms in your independent life, in your family, in your business, in your political preferences. When you understand your freedoms, no one has to bestow it on you because you understand at that moment it's something that you have achieved by simply being born within the borders of the United States of America. When I study this, I, I like to read things. I, matter of fact, my favorite, my favorite topic in school was uh, uh, history, world history. And the turning point in my relationship with my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, who's my girlfriend still, who's now my wife, I studied history, and in my school, James Madison, one of the founding fathers, In order to graduate, you had to pass world history. And I passed world history with flying colors. But knowing world history led me to appreciate Bible prophecy. Because when you study Bible prophecy, you begin to see that history is prophecy revealed and prophecy is history concealed. What took place in Europe was foretold by God what took place in the growth of the Church of Rome during the Dark Ages, the persecution of millions of Christians, the formation of this nation coming up as Revelation chapter 12 and 13 brings America into a sharp focus. When I, when I began to study world history, all of a sudden I had a deeper appreciation of Bible prophecy. I have in my library a history book that is so old that you've got to turn the pages. It's like a communion wafer. It is so old, the pages are dry and dark brown. But I came to discover something, that in that small book of world history are statements and entries that are no longer found in more of the modern world history books. They've taken it out almost to some degree to keep those who read ignorant of how this country came into being. But when I revisited the record of America's battle for independence from Great Britain, a more significant picture emerged. The story, under God's guidance, it began to metamorphosize into a deeper truth. Let me explain. You see, the declaration of independence that led to America's freedom from the oppression of Great Britain is reminiscent of the Christian's declaration of independence that freed us from the oppression of sin. Amen. Too. Thank you, Bob, for saying amen and hallelujah, and thank you, Jesus, for the whole congregation. <laughs> There's another piece to the puzzle. A man by the name of Richard Lee, his resolution of independence by this American statement Reminds me of the resolution of independence from somebody far greater than Richard Lee. You see, long before America declared its independence, the man called Jesus resolved to extend to every citizen of this planet a declaration of independence from the power of sin. Can you say amen? So, on this eve of celebrating the Declaration of Independence from our nation's past, allow me to transition to remind you that if America could celebrate its independence from the tyranny of its past, we ought to be able to celebrate the Declaration of our independence from our past. Come on, somebody. Because I thank God today that I can declare independence. I can declare my independence from who I was and celebrate who I have become in Christ. The declaration of independence. That's why I say it again. Therefore, if the Son makes you free, you shall be together free indeed. You see, friends, when the adversary of souls was planning his sneak attack Determined to hold us in the bondage of his government, heaven lit up the plains of that Judean countryside and gave good news to the shepherds, which if God gave this good news to the shepherds for them to proclaim it, today the shepherds of God ought to be proclaiming the same good news. And what is that good news? And the Bible says, notice these words in Luke chapter 2, verse 13 and 14, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying what? Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace and goodwill towards men. You see, brethren, in the instability of our society, in the unpredictable future of our nation, in the uncertain things of tomorrow and the next week and the next month and the next year, shepherds of the last days can continue to proclaim that we can give glory to God in the highest. And in the midst of a society where there is no peace, we can have personal peace and share goodwill towards all men. There's another piece to the puzzle that I held off on. There was an American novelist by the name of William Faulkner who won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1949, and listen to what he said. It deeply resonated in the area of the truth of freedom. This is profound. I want you to hear it. He said we must be free, not because we claim freedom, but because we practice it. Let me see that again. He said we must be free. Not because we claim freedom, but because we practice it. You see, what he's in essence saying is the world is in need of an external evidence of an inward change. And what the world needs today is not for freedom just to be a Christian fact. He is saying we need to practice and make it clear and evidenced, make it apparent unto all men that we are free, not just by our nation, but we are free by the power and the blood of Christ Jesus. But I want you to grab that again, because freedom is not free unless you practice it. What do I mean? Just consider for a moment the following scenario. Somebody is convicted of a crime. They go to prison or to jail and they serve their time. I can guarantee you when their names are called on the day of their deliverance, on the day that they, are, they have served their sentence and they are now being reinserted into a functioning society, I don't think they walk out of jail saying, Oh, man, I'm surely going to miss being in jail. <laughs> I'm sure they don't walk out and say, man, I can't wait till I get back. And in the very same way, when they walk out, and I've seen some displays. We've done prison ministry, and we have been in contact with people that are, are out, of, out of prison now. They've served their time. They've been reinserted into society. I remember receiving a phone call from a gentleman that had just been freed from uh, incarceration. He lived in the Midwest, but the upper north, not the, not the West West, but the upper mid- Midwest. And he called me and he said, um, he said, I'm trying to figure out how to drive down the street without looking over my shoulder. Because this is strange. He said, it's hard. I, f- I walked into a store. For the first time, and it felt strange. But by the end of the week, I felt free. I was able to walk without being tentative. I was able to drive without looking over my shoulder. I was able to walk into a diner and sit down and order something without being filled with the fear of being arrested or reincarcerated. And so I said, well, and I called him, and he said, I'm looking for a church. I gave him a church. I told him where to attend. And he went. And as time went on, he sent me a small note, and he said, I feel liberated. I'm going to live liberated. I'm going to practice my freedom because I've served my time, and because I'm free, I want to also be free in Jesus. You see, brothers and sisters, One of the sad notes of the Christian life is that we are not free because we want freedom for ourselves. Like the powers of France, the forces of heaven allied themselves with us and fought to gain our independence. But the reason I believe that we don't often walk like we're free or live like we're free or have a face that expresses our freedom or live with a lighthearted joy of knowing that we are children of a higher kingdom an eternal kingdom, a government that will not end, a God who has no financial problems. You'll you'll get it in a moment. A God who never lost a battle, a God who is God all by himself, who can't be voted out and was not voted in. He's from everlasting to everlasting, and there's nobody else standing in line that's going to take his seat on the throne. What do you say? That's the citizens we are members of. That's the kingdom that we are citizens of. By the blood of the Lamb, Jesus declared our independence, a fought battle, a battle that caused him to shed his blood, a battle where he chose to be silent so that one day we can express ourselves, that we can share the good news of his freedom, that we can find that in the moments when the battle seems as though we will not win, that God has reinforcements Soldiers, angels excelling in strength that is ready to deliver our, his children and keep us free to declare our independence. Don't ask me to say that again. You see, brethren, when we are surrounded by soldiers and adversaries, we should do what Elijah did. Look at 2 Kings chapter 6 and verse 17. This is all the evidences of our freedom in Christ. These are all the things that we sometimes fail to recognize because we walk by faith, not by sight. But sometimes we act like we walk by sight and not by faith. Look at an example. This is a faith walk that collided with a sight walk. 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 17. You see, Elijah... When Elijah became the subject of the hatred of the Syrian army, they decided to surround his house. They decided to lock him in. And his servant thought that they were in trouble. He said, this is it. At last, master, what shall we do? And I love this passage. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 17. The Bible says, and Elijah prayed and said, Lord, I pray. What's the next words, friends? Open his eyes. That he may see. Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw what we sometimes fail to see. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. All around Elisha. Let me make that clear. Some of you walk around like there's no army in heaven, some of you walk around like you got to provide all your own needs. Some of us walk around like we got to win the battle all by ourselves. But God told me to tell you today that when you think the battle is too great, I'm going to say my prayer for you is that God would open your eyes, that God would help you to see. That's why Revelation says, anoint my eyes with eyes so that I may see. Can I contemporize that? When you can see the hope of your children, when you don't know that they're going to give their lives to the Lord, say, Father, open my eyes. That I can see you fighting a battle to win my children. You see, the prayer that God gave to Isaiah, he said, I will contend with those who contend with me and I'll save their children. Can somebody say amen? And I'm here today because the lady who raised me prayed before she died. She prayed that God would find this wayward young man in the streets of New York who went down the road of gambling and promiscuity and pool hustling and partying. There was a prayer that existed and continued to rise before God long after my mother's voice was silenced. And I'm here today because God still answers prayer. Because God knows how to fight battles when we can't fight battles for ourselves. What am I saying to you? You cannot declare your independence if you fail to realize that God surrounds your life with chariots of fire, angels that excel in strength. Come on, say amen, somebody. When God fights a battle, He doesn't even need a whole lot of angels. He could send one angel. You remember the story? One angel killed 185,000 enemy. When Jesus was being arrested, He told Peter, Put up your sword. My father could have sent 12 legions of angels. He said to Peter, Peter thought he had a weapon, but God had secret service. And he said to Peter, put up your sword. My father could have sent 12 legions of angels. And when you count that up, God could have sent 80,000 angels to turn the Roman army into nothing but a pile of ashes. But you know why he didn't? Because his freedom was not important. Our freedom was. Somebody ought to say Amen. He gave up his freedom that we might have our freedom. So, my brothers, in the trenches of your greatest battle, my prayer for you is, Lord, open their eyes. You see, brethren, that's significant because we just came through a vortex of political activity that caused our eyes to be looking in the wrong direction, looking to flesh and blood, arguing about this candidate versus that candidate. Yes, I said it. And we thought somehow if we vote for that candidate and this one lose or that candidate wins and this one loses, that somehow our future is secure. That's not the security of the Christian. You see, we vote for Jesus. And there is no secret ballot that need to be recounted to keep him in office. <laughs> Amen, somebody. <laughs> there ain't no fixed machines keeping him on the throne. He's on the throne. And there is no battle. Thank you, Bob. Come on, say it again. He owns the throne. Quoting Bob Eats. He owns the throne. Amen, somebody. So I ain't worried about what's going to happen in 2024. If I'm alive then, God give me the grace to be. I'm not worried about next week or next month or next year. Why? The Apostle Paul says it beautifully in Romans 8 and verse 31. When you are in the trenches of your battles, I pray God open their eyes. Paul says it this way. What then shall we say of these things? If God is for us, say it with me. Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us? How many things? All things. As you sit here today... Everything that, ha- that heaven has in stock is at your prayer, is at your disposal. I remember reading a story in one of Ellen White's writings, and she talked about when the people of God entered the kingdom of God. She said, in the future, there'll be those who will enter the kingdom of God. And she said, to the side as they entered the kingdom, she saw a, a, a room. And when they looked into the room, they saw all these beautiful things. And, and they asked the angel, what are these? And the angel said, these are blessings that the people of God never claimed. These are blessings they never asked God to bless them with. These are prayers that were never answered because they didn't pray the prayer. I'm saying to you today, when you are facing a battle, remember, if God before you, no one can be against you. God doesn't need the approval of Congress to fight our battles. He's there 24 hours a day, Tracy, seven days a week, on my left and on my right. As a matter of fact, the psalmist says it this way, the angel of the Lord encampeth round about those that fear him and does what? Delivers them. So for those of you that fear tomorrow, I have a lot of people that come to me and say, Pastor, what's going to happen tomorrow? I don't know. But God does. And just as God told Israel, I'm telling you today, You see, God knows tomorrow. You know why? He's already there. You don't believe it, ask the people in Australia. (laughs) God's already there. When I preach here on Sabbath morning in Australia, they're watching it on Sunday afternoon. They say, Pastor, when you preach on Sabbath morning, we're watching it on Sunday. God is already in tomorrow. Can you say amen? I spoke to my good friend Jim Rennie a few days ago, and he says, happy day. He says, happy day from tomorrow. God's already there. He's in New Zealand. God's already there. I love, what, I love what Second Chronicles says about those who fear tomorrow. Look at this. Second Chronicles chapter 20 and verse 17. This is beautiful. We have a God that never loses battle, but notice what he says to the saints of the last days. You will not need to fight in this battle. Know what he said to do? Position yourselves. Say that with me. Position yourselves. I'll tell you what that means in a moment. Position yourselves. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord who is with you, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not fear nor be dismayed. Why? Tomorrow. What day, friends? Tomorrow. Go out against them, for the Lord is with you. Ah, shucks. I'm wasting my time. (laughs) For the Lord is what? When? 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 Tomorrow. He's with you now and he's waiting for you tomorrow. He said, Go out tomorrow for the Lord is with you. Thank God that when I get to tomorrow, God is with me. What does he mean by position yourself? One of the reasons why we can't experience his blessing is we don't position ourselves. You know what it means by position yourself? Position yourself on your knees in prayer. I heard a story about little birds, little sparrows. Somebody once asked the, 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 the racing question, how does a sparrow endure heavy winds? And they go to sleep on the branches at night, and the winds are howling, and these little sparrows weigh less than a few ounces of sitting there, and they are in the morning. They fly back to our bird feeder, and we said it was windy last night. Branches came down, and that same sparrow came back. The night. How did they do that? Somebody once said, when sparrows sleep, they bend their knees, and when they bend their knees, it locks their claws, and no wind on any amount can blow a sparrow off when his knees are bent. See, brethren, you got to position yourself on your knees. When your knees are bent, young folk, when your knees are bent, not when your eyes are bent. See, the world wants to bend your eyes to Instagram and Facebook and TikTok and Twitter and all that. The world wants to bend your eyes. God wants to bend your knees. When you position yourself on your knees, there you can claim the promises of God. There the battles of life are fought and won. Not only that, position yourself. Instead of looking at the problem, position yourself to look at the problem solver. Position yourself. Instead of focusing on all the things around you, look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. Position your eyes in the right direction. This week, my wife and I had a chance To talk to a dear lady in India. She kept sending a message to my wife. I need to talk to you. I need to talk to you. So after we finished Wednesday night Bible studies. My wife said call her. So we FaceTimed her. In India. It was nine nine or so in the evening here. And it was seven o'clock in the morning there. In India. Tomorrow. And this lady was in distress. Her eyes told the whole story. Her eyes were red. Her face looked haggard and worn. And she began to, almost at, almost at a rate of speed that I wanted to say, slow down. But I said, let her speak. Let her talk. Oh, my husband left me. My children turned against me. My father is not helping me. My mother is not helping me. They have all gained up against me. They don't believe what I believe. They have a different religion. They are persecuting me. My husband is lying to the courts. My friends have turned away from me. The community is run by Muslims. I'm a Seventh-day Adventist Christian. I have no job. My money is running out in three months. I don't know what to do. And she was going and going and going, and she was crying, and she was in agony and stress. So let her go. Let her keep. And I said to her, sister, listen, listen. And she dove right back into her reciting all of her difficulties, all of her problems, said, Sister, listen, listen. And I looked right into the camera. Listen to me. Yes. And she pulled the phone close to her face. Yes. So what time is it there? She said, It's 7.30. I said, It's 9.30 here. Yes, Pastor, what do I do? She said, In three months I'll have no more money. In three months everything will end for me. What do I do, Pastor? I have no job. And she kept going. I said, Sister, listen. Listen to me. You've spent all your time focusing on the left hand, but God said, I will uphold you with my righteous right arm. Your husband, your children, your mother, your father, your friends, those you work with, the money you have, the left hand. God says, focus on the right hand. I said, listen to me. Say this, focus. She looked at him. She said, focus. I said, focus. She said, focus. Focus i began to recite god poured into me like a water fountain like a cup under my niagara falls my cup was overflowing and the promises of god came out of my mouth like a gatling gun listen one promise after the other came out in this lady's face we saw we literally saw her face go from agony to peace we said god is for you no one can stand against you. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. I mean, we, we, the text from Genesis to Revelation, they were coming out like, praise God. And she, when she began to go back and I said, focus. She said, focus, okay. Fo- she said, pastor, you're right. I've been focusing in the wrong direction. I said, does God know when your money's going to run out? I said, yes. God says, I've, David says, I was young and now I'm old. I've never seen the righteous forsaken nor there is seed begging for bread. Do you think that God can do for you what he did for David? Yes. Focus. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, look to him and be safe, for I am God and there is no other. I took it the to stories in the Bible. What did God do? He t- I said, God doesn't always take the fire away. Sometimes God has to heat your furnace seven times hotter before your adversaries realize that God has power even over fire that's seven times hotter. Nebuchadnezzar did not know God until the furnace was seven times hotter. So I said, God's not going to take away your trials. God's not going to remove the battles. He's going to let your adversaries heat the furnace so that they can see the God that you serve. She said, My family member said, What kind of God do you serve that left you in this position? She said, My husband is lying to the courts. He's falsifying documents. I said, She said, What should I do? Should I falsify documents to win? I said, Never tell a lie to win. And when we finished that phone call, I said, look for my email. And I sat down and sent her four pages of Bible texts, quotations, huh? promises. My fingers were going. And by 1115, I'm still writing these texts. I'm still writing these texts. And I emailed the tour. And when I was just about to email, God gave me one more and I put it in there. God gave me another one. I said, I want you to read this. I want you to claim it. I want you to bow your knees, position yourself on the promises of God, I want to tell you, my friends, we've got to be a people that understand in these trying times how to position ourselves in prayer, how to focus our eyes, how to look away from the problem to the problem solver, how to see Jesus in our fiery furnace, Jesus in our den of lions. Somebody ought to say amen. Jesus who never lost a battle. And she sent me back an email. Pastor, I received your email and I'm going to focus. I put it in steps, focus, and I put seven steps. Then I gave her scriptures. God, let me tell you something. When God's word becomes the focus of your mind, God will open the floodgates, and you shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of waters. That bring its fruit forth in due season. You will be a light amidst the darkest circumstances, and people will say Who is that person? What do they have that I need? That's why I love the preamble at the base of the Statue of Liberty. This ought to be our preamble. The poem given to us by France, this ought to be the words of the shepherds in the last days. This is what France wrote to America, but this ought to be our preamble. Give me your tired. Your poor, your huddle masses learning to breathe free the wretched refuse of your teeming shores. Send these the homeless. Tempest-tossed to me, I lift my lamp beside the golden door. That ought to be our preamble. What do you say? That's why it's terrible when we look at immigrants as invaders. It is terrible when America becomes a country that looks at immigrants as invaders when America would not even be a country if it were not for immigrants. You think our founding fathers were born here? Tell that to the Indians. America is a country of immigrants. Give us your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. That's why I told this young lady, I said, you got to understand when burdens come, where to put those burdens. And David the psalmist said it so beautifully in Psalm 55 and verse 22. He said, cast your burden on the Lord, and he shall sustain you. He shall never permit the righteous to be moved. Timothy Keller wrote, he said, the great basis of Christian assurance is not how much our hearts are set on God. I love this. But how unshakable God's heart is set on us. I am so glad that God cannot be shaken. Where would I be if God can be shaken? Where would the church be if God can be shaken? We ought to wear God's promises like a swimmer wears a life vest. When you do that, all the water in the world cannot drown God's promises because God's promises in the midst of the ocean of trial and difficulty and the unknown will hold you up. Christians ought to grab onto God's promises and and wrap themselves in it. Put the life vest of God's promises around you. And like the little cork that kept being hammered by the tail of a whale, that whale saw that cork and said, the cork came back up. And that whale looked at it and said, "Pap." Cork came back up. And that cork said, you can hit me as many times as you want, but I'm going to come back to the surface. (laughs) My brethren, when we are floating on the promises of God and recognize that God's heart is set on us in an unshakable way, only then can the perseverance that we need in the last days be a part of our experience. When we wear God's promises like a vest, We begin to embrace something called perseverance. Oswald Chambers said, perseverance is more than endurance. One of my favorite writers, perseverance is more than endurance. It is endurance combined with the absolute assurance and certainty that what we are looking for is going to happen. Let me say that one more time. You probably didn't get that. Perseverance is more than endurance. Perseverance is the endurance combined with the absolute assurance and certainty that what we are looking for in Christ is going to happen. That's why the Apostle Paul encapsulated perseverance in these two verses, Romans 8, verse 38 and 39. These are perseverance verses. Look at what he said, for I am persuaded. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to do what, friends? Separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And I say amen to that. Nothing is able to separate us. And believe me, the devil has tried. Sometimes I felt my hand letting go of Christ's hand, but I've never felt Christ's hands letting go of my hands. Sometimes I felt my feet going in the wrong direction, but then I heard that Jesus turned around and followed me to bring me back. Sometimes I saw myself walking down the wrong path, and I said, where is God? I only see two footprints, and the writer said, that's when God was carrying you. Why am I preaching this way? Because we haven't seen anything yet. The declaration of independence we enjoy as a nation, but one day the very things that we treasure will be taken away temporarily. But God's declaration of independence can never be revoked by any human agent. And in the midst of all of our battles, persuasion is the act of transferring our convictions into our actions. Perseverance is the determination to transfer our convictions into our actions. So how many of you believe But then how many of you practice that belief? I heard the story about a man named Charles Bolden. This happened in 1859. It was actually July 15, 1859. People were filled with spectacle as they saw Charles Bolden. This man was known, he was a tightrope walker, and he did some spectacular things. But he decided to display himself there. Across Niagara Falls, he decided to... Walk across Niagara Falls, first of all, with a a pole, and and he successfully back and forth across the falls, 160 feet above the crushing waters of Niagara, walking back and forth, back and forth, and people, ooh, and ah. Then he did something. He put down his pole, and he got himself a wheelbarrow, took off the wheel, and decided, I'm going to do this. And he walked back and forth over the falls as people said, ah, walking back and forth, successfully over the Niagara Falls. And Paul, and then Charles stopped to the, to, the, to the chagrin of the crowd and he said, do you think I can carry a person in this wheelbarrow across Niagara Falls? And everybody said, yes. <laughs> and he said, which one of you would like to get into the wheelbarrow? <laughs> See, brethren, that's where persuasion becomes an action. You can believe God's promises, but until you are willing to... Enter into those circumstances that seem to be unreasonable and uncertain. You'll never know the delivering power of God. Today I'm saying to you, as long as Jesus is pushing the wheelbarrow, I will get in. Because I'd rather be in a storm with Christ than in a calm without him. The wheelbarrows of life. But God is not asking us to get into the Niagara Fall wheelbarrow. He's simply asking us to trust him. He's simply saying, you can believe my promises, you can hold on to them because nothing can come your way that I cannot handle. Even if you are laid to rest, make sure you're laid to rest in Christ. Circumstances that are uncertain. Look what Joshua said. I love the way he said this. Joshua 1 and verse 9. He says, have I not commanded you? This is the commandment that we keep forgetting. We know about the Ten Commandments. Allow me to introduce you to the 11th. Have I not commanded you? What is the 11th commandment? Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid nor be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you. What? Wherever you go. Amen? So allow me to wind up with these seven quick points. You see, Jesus has a declaration of independence. The preamble is, if the son therefore shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. Free from what? First of all, let me introduce you to the God that has power over distance. The God that has power over distance. We find in the story of the Bible, in the book of John, a Roman official that came to Cana asking Jesus to heal his dying son. What happened was, Capernaum was about the, the 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 Roman official lived about 20 miles away in Capernaum. Jesus was in Cana, 20 miles away from Capernaum. What did the Lord say to him? What did the Lord say to him? Here's what he said. Jesus said to him, Go your way, your son lives. John 4, verse 50. Jesus said to him, Go your way, your son lives. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went his way. And when he finished his 20-mile journey, he found that the word of God can be trusted. Now, what Jesus is this? Jesus can heal at a distance. Jesus can change our lives from a distance, allow me to introduce you to one of the preambles of the Declaration of Jesus' independence. "I am the Jesus that has power over distance." Uh, y'all making me thirsty. Jesus doesn't have to be in your house to straighten things out in your house. He could be on the throne controlling the universe and said, I heard you, Ricky. I heard you, Brian. I heard you, Bob. I heard you, April. I got it. Don't worry about it, Pamela. He is the God who doesn't need to be there. He can take of things at a distance. Can you say amen? We serve a Jesus who has power Over distance, but we also serve a Jesus who has power over time. You may remember the man by the pool of Bethesda. That man was there for 38 years. Don't miss what I'm saying. Some people have been battling in their lives for decade to decade to decade over habits that have bound them. But time is no factor to Jesus. Because when he came to the pool of of Bethesda, he saw a man laying there with excuses one after the other. People always get into water when the angels move the water. And Jesus said, do you want to be made well? What did Jesus do? John 5 and verse 8. Jesus said to him, rise, take up your bed and walk. You know what happened? It did not matter how long the man was there. When Jesus said, walk, he walked. What am I saying? What are you saying, Pastor John? Break that down. Okay, you've been praying for your kids for 10 years Maybe you've been praying for them for 20 years. Maybe maybe you've been praying for 30 years. Maybe you've been wondering for 40 years where your life is going to go. But let the man who was in that position for 38 years tell you that time is not a factor for Jesus. He has the power over time. Amen, somebody? But not only that, we serve a God who has power over quantity. What do you mean quantity? 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 I read a story somewhere where Jesus was confronted by a multitude of 5,000 people, a multitude of 5,000 people, and all they had was five small loaves and two meager sardines, (laughs) sardine sized fish, a little boy's lunch. Jesus has power over quantity. What did the Lord do? What did the Lord do? John 6, verse 9 and 10 the God who has power over quantity. There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish. But what are they among so many? Then Jesus said, make the people sit down. Now here, now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down in number about 5,000. That's just the men. If you count their wives and children... It could have been upwards of 15,000 people. What did the Lord do? He raised those loaves and those fishes and asked God to bless it. What am I saying to you today? How could God do so much with so little? Math is not a problem to Jesus. Some of you think you have so little that God can't do anything. Math is not a problem to Jesus because lack is not enough to cause Jesus to worry about disability. He can take a little and make it a lot. He can turn little into much when your life circumstances call for it. Little is much when God is in it. Little is much when God is in it. I'm telling you this because some of you struggle in these areas. You think that you've been in this situation for so long, God can't change it. You have so little, God can't bless it. You don't know what to do. God has seemed so far away when you and your problems, but God can work on your life at a distance. But not only that, God is not only the God of quantity, but God is the God of quality. Quality. I remember the wedding at Cana. When we went to Israel a few years ago, I performed a wedding rededication ceremony in a church in Cana of Galilee. We had all the wedding couples standing there, all the married couples, and we rededicated them. And we brought back some grape juice, some non-alcoholic wine from Cana of Galilee. And we used it quickly before it ferments. Didn't want to get holy drunk. One Didn't want to get drunk at all. But why am I saying God is a God of quality? In the wedding of Cana, weddings lasted seven days at a time, seven days at a time, and the guests were drinking and drinking and drinking, not getting inebriated, not getting drunk, but they knew that they knew that they were running out of their supply. What did Jesus do? What did Jesus do? He showed up seven days later, and look what he did. John 2 and verse 10, and he said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And when the guests have well drank, then the inferior. But look at this. You have kept the good wine until now. What am I saying to you, friends? When you think the best of your life is behind you, we serve a Jesus who saves the best for last. Amen. You wonder why you are the way you are now? You thought your life was going down the wrong path and there was no chance of turning it around. Jesus steps in into the wedding of your life and turns it around, and your present circumstance is far greater and far better than it was seven years ago. Can I get a witness? Jesus saves the best for last. The God of quality, he can multiply. The God of quantity give you the best at the end of the feast And turn your life around. But not only that. We serve a God who has power over nature. You remember the disciples. When they were on the Sea of Galilee. And the winds were tossing their boat. And Jesus was asleep in the back of the ship. They thought that they were surely goners. But I want to tell you. They forgot Jesus was on board. He is not only the power, the God of quality and quantity, but he is the God who has power over nature. What did our God do? The Bible says in in Mark chapter 4 and verse 39, then he arose and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace be still, and the wind ceased, and there was a what, friends? A great calm. What am I saying to you today? If Jesus can calm the storms in the life of his disciples, He can calm the storms in our lives. When he calms those storms, we've got to, by faith, declare our independence from fear of storms. (laughs) I'm not talking theory. I'm talking experience. Is God a God of quantity? Oh, yeah. Is God a God of quality? Mm Mm-hmm. Can God change my life from a distance? He has. Can he control circumstances that are out of control? He did. And if God can calm the storms in the lives of his servants, God can calm the storms in your life. I got two more. Can you hang on? God is also the God who has power over misfortune over misfortune there are some people born into circumstances they say how is it ever going to get any better this is the family i was born in this is who my mom and dad are this is the kind of neighborhood i'm from that's why when they saw where jesus was from they said could any good thing come out of nazareth jesus did i always say can any good thing come out of brooklyn (laughs) jesus found something amen Can any good thing come out of any neighborhood? If Jesus is in the transforming business, he can find something good where we feel that nothing can come out good. In Jerusalem, Jesus is traveling, and he found a man who was born blind from birth. He found a man that was born blind from birth, and Jesus turned his life around. He spat on the ground, put clay on this young man's eyes, and notice what Jesus said in John 9 and verse 7. And he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went and washed and came back, what? Seeing. Why is this story powerful? Why is this story significant to us today? Because some of us rehearse our misfortune. Some of us talk about all the things that we had to deal with all our lives. How could I be any different than I am? Look at my dad. Look at my mom. Look at my community. Look at my friends. Look at me. I don't have nothing. I came from nothing. Don't know nothing. Excuse my English. How can God turn that around? Let me tell you something. If God can take a blind man and restore his sight, Jesus can restore the things that you thought you will never experience. What you thought you'd never have, some of, you are, some of you are delivered today, and you don't know how it happened. Let me tell you how it happened. The Lord showed up in your town. He passed by your house. Somebody ought to say amen. He found a man who was blind all his life, couldn't see the promises of God, couldn't see the transformation, couldn't see the blessings, couldn't see how God could turn it around, but he did it. He came to your house, and when he sent you, you came back seeing what you never thought was even there. I know that. How does an abandoned child in the home of a stranger end up being a pastor to proclaim the goodness of God all around the universe? Has God passed by my house? How does a three-year-old girl whose father died and gave her no foundation, how does a person born in circumstances beyond their control become anything? Because God stops by your house, transforms your life. And what you cannot see You see, there's something about being born again. Unless a man is born again, he cannot see. Let me tell you something, friends. There are certain things you'll never see until you experience the transforming, reversing touch of Christ. He has power over misfortune. But I got one more. I got one more. This this is going to get even deeper. When Lazarus died, when Lazarus died, Mary and Martha thought that the end had finally come. If he only had been here, if he had tweaked the circumstances, but you were not around. You are four days late. You've been to our house before. You ate with us. You visited with us. Somebody told you about Lazarus. What happened? Did you forget how nice he was to you? (laughs) And Jesus said, just show me where he's buried. Now, why is this important to me? We just laid to rest a 31-year-old girl. One day, God is going to say, show me where she's buried. And God is going to say, death, your expiration date has come. Can somebody say amen? God said, death, today is your death day. God said in John 11, verse 43 and 44, Now, when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth, and Jesus said to them, Loose him and let him go. Brethren, When death comes, we are sure that that's the end of the story. But I'm going to tell you today, I'm going to tell you today, Jesus can change any circumstance. You see, I'm not a Christian because I found a way to get free. I'm a Christian because Jesus set me free. I'm not a Christian today declaring that my nation is a place that has independence. I am saying today I'm a citizen of a kingdom that has never been under anybody's bondage. I'm declaring my independence today. I'm proclaiming my declaration of independence from impatience. I'm going to wait on Jesus. Sometimes he saves the best for last. I'm declaring my independence from fear. Jesus can answer the most earnest prayers from a distance. I'm claiming my independence from asking Jesus when. Because time is not a factor to try Christ. He can change your circumstance no matter how many decades pass by. I'm declaring my independence from saying, Lord, I don't have enough money. How am I going to do that? How am I, I going to go to school? How am I going to buy a house? How am I going to fix my car? How am I going to secure enough funds for the future? Let me tell you something. When you don't think you have enough, God is a God of abundance. He replace your lack with his abundance. Somebody ought to say amen. But Father, there are storms in my life today. I'm declaring my independence from thinking that I've got to control everything. I'm just saying, Lord, stand up when the winds are blowing in my life. Stand up and calm the waves and tell the sea to leave me alone. Stand up and tell the wind, stop blowing my saints overboard. Leave them alone. God is the God of control. I am declaring my independence today from talking about all my misfortunes. This happened and that happened. And I got to deal with this and I got to deal with that. I'm saying, Lord, today, I'm just going to pray, open my eyes so I can see your glory. Open my eyes so I can experience the blessing. Today I'm saying, Father, I've lost a lot of loved ones. A lot of people are laying in the graves. But today I'm declaring my independence from even fear of death because I know now that you are the resurrection and the life. You see, brothers and sisters, in this closing hour, God is looking for the Paul Revere's of the last days. God is looking for those who in the midnight hour are willing to proclaim not the British are coming, but that Jesus is coming. God is looking for those that who, who will be willing to put a lantern in the, in the steeple of their lives so that those in the darkness, when the enemy is approaching for, them, for their demise, God is saying, let your light so shine so that they may see your good works and find safety in their midnight hour. God is saying, set your lanterns in the steeple of your lives. Ignite the torches of your message. Make it clear. And say to the world, we're declaring independence from the power of sin. My brothers today, my sisters today, the question to you is who is willing to go in Jesus' name and declare independence? Who's willing today to stand up and say, I don't have to worry about quantity or nature or quality or misfortune, what I have or what I don't have. I'm just declaring my freedom in Jesus. And his preamble says, and my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory. Is there somebody willing today to stand and say, I'm declaring my independence? I'm declaring my independence. I know the devil's going to hit me this week, but when he tries to make me fearful of fear and death and quantity and quality and weather and misfortune and my situation and my eyesight, I'm going to say I'm declaring my independence from all of that, and I'm embracing the preamble of Jesus. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Today is the day that we declare our independence. I'm going to ask the praise team to come and sing And as we sing this song, as we sing this closing song, we're going to pray, but I don't want you just to pray. This song means a lot. I want you to say, take my life and let it be. Let it be the place, let it be the place where we're saying to the world, God is not at a distance. He knows what's going on. Time is not a factor. God is there. Quality and quantity, he's got it taken care of. He can open your eyes. He can turn. He can save the best for last. He can calm the storms. Somebody today needs to put a lantern in their steeple and proclaim that Jesus is coming because we are living in the midnight hour. Let's sing the song together, and then we're going to pray. I'm going to make an appeal, and then we're going to pray. Let's sing it. Now, before you sing the second verse, make this a testament. This is not a song that we sing because it's a beautiful hymn. You're saying, take. That means you're willing to give. That means you want him to take your hands. But not only that, Paul Revere had to be willing to put himself on the line. When you read the story, Paul Revere had to sneak past the British to even get to his force. He was willing to put his life on the line and if Paul Revere wasn't willing to face danger for the safety and the deliverance of others, we would not be here today. His feet were under the guidance of Christ. Today, if you want your feet to be under the guidance of Christ, sing this as your testament. Let's sing this.
1: Take my
0: going to be swift, take our feet and our hands. But somebody's got to say, as Paul did, Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. This requires lips. This requires hearts. This requires lives. This requires those who want everybody to know that deliverance is on the way. Can we give our lips to Christ? Let's sing that today. Take,
1: Take my, my lips and, and-
0: said it, and now it's your turn to say it. Your will can become the will of Jesus. Your life can become the plan of heaven. But you got to give it. you got to give it. He's not going to take it, but He'll take what you give. Are you willing to give it? To transform your life from this humdrum fearful life to a life where the will of God is coming through you. Where your heart is His, your will is His. If that's your testament today, Let's sing to the glory of God. Take my Some of you don't know how to love. Some of you have never loved anybody but yourself. But to be a saint of God, you got to love. You got to say, Lord, take my love. My Lord, I pour at thy feet thy treasure. Take myself. Today, you notice God is taking you only as you give yourself. If you want your love to be like the love of Jesus, like the power of heaven, let's sing this to his glory we give you our love. Take my that complete surrender to Christ today all these things you said you want God to take you want God to take it are you willing to give it Amen. you will never know what it's like to have a friend like Jesus whose supply is never exhausted whose love never fails whose forgiveness is always extended whose grace is never ever held back whose patience is is longer than the lines on our faces whose joy is greater than the brightest morning but you'll never know unless you say take it father in heaven we're standing today because we're standing in a country where we can declare our independence but one day we're going to stand on golden streets where we're going to see all that you have fought to attain for us all that you have wrenched from the hand of the enemy to give to your children. Father, today teaches what it means to give away. I give my life away so that you can use it. I give myself away so that you can be the God of my heart, my throne, my lips, my heart, my hands, my love, my voice. Take all of me and give me a horse. So that I can go out and declare, Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming. Light a light in my steeple so that people can see in the darkness of their night that God is still on the throne. And when it's all said and done, we'll stand at the table of the freedom dinner, free to love and to care and to share. And to see the, 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 the nail-print hands that bought our freedom. As we declare our nation's freedom, may we declare our freedom in your holy and precious blood. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's people said, Amen.